If you have your Bible, turn with me to Proverbs uh, 26. Uh, we believe that when we gather together, we sing together, and we enjoy fellowship together, we pray for one another, we do those one another's, but we also believe that when the Word of God is preached, God Himself speaks. And we want to lean in and listen to what God has to say, not purely as an academic exercise, but uh, so that we can understand Him better and our world better and live in a way that glorifies Him. If you're new with us, what we tend to do is work our way through books of the Bible, kind of verse by verse or section by section. It's called expositional preaching. In fact, next week, we're going to begin a new series through the book of Acts called The Mission to Save the World. And I don't know if you've been in the book of Acts for a while, but it's just incredible, fascinating, and uh, it's going to be a very powerful book to study. Um, but I wanted to start the new year off, as I was kind of uh, said earlier, by looking at the divine wisdom of God, by looking at the Proverbs and seeking His wisdom. And so as we continue to contrast the, the wise person and the fool, uh, we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see what the fool receives, we're going to see how to respond to a fool, and what is the greatest foolishness of all. So what the fool receives, how to respond to a fool, and what is the greatest foolishness of all. When I was a senior in college at a small Christian school in Ohio, I lived with six other men, uh, students in an uh, early 1900 Victorian house that had uh, two stories but only one working bathroom. And you might, you might surmise that the real problem area would have been the bathroom, right? Seven guys trying to use the same bathroom. That was no issue, no problem at all. The real problem was the refrigerator. Uh, you could put something in there, put your name on it with a Sharpie. You can put, you could put death threats, Bible verses. It didn't matter. That was not going to last long. It didn't matter. If there was something in there that was desirable, it was, it was going to be gone. Um, so we lived together, the seven of us. We became good friends, many of us, and spent a lot of time together. And even though our schedules were different and we had different jobs, just about every day, not every day, but just about every day, about 11 p.m., we would find ourselves gathered around the rectangular table in the kitchen talking about something. Sometimes it was politics, sometimes it was sports, sometimes it was current events, relationships, religion, whatever it was. And sometimes we'd end up talking about the Bible, what God says about Himself in His Word. And I don't remember, in fact, I don't really remember any of those conversations except one, and the one I'm going to tell you about now is where we're standing around the table. And, and we started to talk about why is it that it seems like some of the promises in the Bible don't ring true in terms of they don't match with our everyday experience. One uh, person brought up Proverbs 22.6, which says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And we all knew people, we knew families, uh, ostensibly very strong Christian families, where the parents had trained up their children in the way they should go, and yet the children... The, the child actually went a different way and by all accounts did not return. And we said, how do we make sense of this? It just doesn't seem to match with our experience. Another person brought up uh, Proverbs 10 verse 3, which says, the Lord does not right let the righteous go hungry. And we had not, you know, we were, I was a senior and the other students were at different uh, levels, different uh, grades, so to speak. And so we hadn't done a lot of international travel, but we all knew that there were people in other places in the world who were following Jesus with great devotion, many of whom were actually starving to death. Places like Burma, Myanmar, uh, Haiti, Liberia, places like Egypt and southern India. We knew places where people were dying, and these were, these were passionate followers of Christ 
So he said, how can this be true that the, the Lord doesn't let the righteous go hungry? Or what about Proverbs 14? Another uh, guy brought up, it says, all hard work brings a profit. And we knew about people. We knew of people who were working very hard, but they weren't making any money. New business owners or people who started Christian businesses that weren't really doing well. And so he said, how can all this be true? Well, what we didn't realize at the time was that the wise sayings contained in the Proverbs are not guarantees, but general truths. The Proverbs tell us how things tend to work most of the time. This is the way the wisdom literature works. In fact, in his book on understanding the Bible, Grant Osborne writes this about the Proverbs. We dare not read more into the proverbial statement than there is. By their very nature, they are generalized statements intended to give advice rather than establish rigorous codes by which God works. In other words, while these principles are generally true, there are exceptions. And of course, the Proverbs don't have footnotes. Sometimes parents train their children up in the way they should go and they don't return to that way. Sometimes the righteous do go hungry. Sometimes hard work does not lead to profit. It doesn't mean the Bible's not true. It doesn't mean that God cannot be trusted. It just means we have to learn how to interpret the wisdom literature as we learn how to interpret all the different genres in the Bible. And just as a plug, I, I plan on teaching a class. I plan on starting it actually in mid-January, uh, a Wednesday night class for adults, uh, biblical hermeneutics or how to understand the Bible. It's been pushed back uh, you know, a few weeks because of COVID and the inability to gather in a small room and still maintain spacing. But uh, put, that, you know, put that in the back of your mind, I guess, is something we're going to look at. How do we understand the Scripture? How do we make uh, sense of it all? In Proverbs 26, which we're looking at today, we're going to see what appears to be a contradiction. Two things that say the opposite uh, statements. But when it's understood in light of its literary context, I don't think it's going to be hard for us to make sense of it all. This book, we've been in for the last two weeks, written by Solomon, largely by Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, it does two things. It offers us wisdom that we can live by, that, that, that really provides for us or guides us into the fullest sort of life possible, uh, strengthening our relationships, strengthening our finances, parenting, career, whatever it is. So it offers wisdom. And the second thing it does is it points us to the truly wise one, Jesus Christ, the very embodiment of the wisdom of God, and the only one to actually meet God's standard for wisdom and obedience. So uh, let's look at it together. We'll cover verses 1 through 5, but let me uh, begin by verses leading, reading verses 1 through 3. Here reads the word of the Lord. Like snow in summer or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. So here in this section, Solomon begins with warnings both about the fool and to the fool. The fool, as you recall, is not necessarily someone who's not smart or someone who lacks intelligence, but instead someone who will not respond to correction, who will not follow instruction, but in fact spurns wisdom. He is arrogant and stubborn. She will not listen to anyone. And the teacher reminds us that those who spurn wisdom will suffer. Now, you know how in North Alabama, sometimes you can, we can experience 
multiple seasons in one day. You know, the day starts out and it's sunny and it's warm and uh, and then by the time we get to the afternoon or the early evening, it's cold and windy and maybe it's rainy or uh, maybe we go out like I did. I was mowing my lawn last summer and it was hot and incredibly humid and I went out and I, just, I started. The, I couldn't see a, a cloud in the sky when I first started, but about halfway in, it started raining. And even as I looked up, I really didn't see anything but maybe one little cloud and the seasons kind of changed. Well, in the ancient Near Eastern world, and I'm talking about Palestine in particular, where uh, Solomon would have written many of these proverbs, there were really only two seasons, summer and winter. And in fact, a summer was arid and dry. It ran from April until September. Winter was rainy and gray. It went from October to March. And in the summer, it didn't really rain, and it certainly never snowed. What Solomon is doing here is making the point that there are certain weather patterns that do not fit certain seasons. And in the same way, he says in verse 1, a fool has no more chance of seeing lasting honor than a hot summer's day has a chance of seeing snow. Here's our first point if you're taking notes, what the fool receives. The fool's flippant outlook and disdain for instruction bring him what he deserves, shame and disgrace. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I know people that by all accounts are fools, the celebrities, professional athletes, politicians, and, and everybody seems to follow them, and they're, they're greatly esteemed and whatever. Well, this can happen for a while, and you can be a fool, and you can garner millions of Twitter followers, and you can have uh, people who hang on your every word, but it doesn't last long. A fool is exposed for what he is. And a fool will receive the shame and disgrace that he deserves. In fact, verse 3 highlights this, his stupidity. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the backs of fools. Here Solomon compares a fool to a stubborn animal. And the only way to steer the animal is to beat him into submission. It's a very scary thought, isn't it? Now, I know how this works when you're listening to sermons because I do the same thing. The first thing we do is when we're listening to the sermon, we think, oh, that would be great for my neighbor, or that would be so good for my husband, or I really wish my friend were here to, to hear this. But this proverb that I just read about the fool is not just counsel on how to interact with a fool, although we're going to see that in just a minute. It's also warning against being unteachable ourselves. The rod is reserved for those who won't listen. It's just a poetic way of reiterating what we talked about two weeks ago. If we refuse to heed counsel, if we will not listen to instruction, if we always insist that our way is the right way, then we will receive the consequences that naturally follow. In other words, this is a grave warning to us not to be hard-hearted, not to be stubborn. As Old Testament Derek Kidner says, this proverb with its fellows, with the other proverbs like it, is written for us in two capacities, as people dealing with fools and as potential fools ourselves. So none of us is immune to this sort of stubbornness. None of us is beyond uh, not listening. None of us is beyond a passive-aggressive response. In fact, you know, we read about the, la- the, we, the, the people that Lady Wisdom encounters, the wise person, the simple person, and the fool. I think it's fair to say that we all can vacillate between the three. Sometimes, by God's grace, we are the wise person. We, 
we show that we've paid attention to what God has said about Himself in our world, and sometimes we refuse to hear instruction. Other times we're, we're simple. That is to say, we just don't pursue learning. So this is not a sermon for your neighbor or for your classmate or for your husband. This is a sermon for all of us. So we don't normally do this, but I want you to uh, look to the person next to you and say, this sermon is for me. I will not hold it against you. Nobody did that. That's okay. It's not part of our culture. But try this. Uh, now now the, the person on the other side, this sermon is for me, but you need it more. No, don't really say that, but I'm just seeing if you're still tracking with me. All right, let's look at, uh, let's look at verse 2 again. Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. So here's, here's a beautiful thing about living wisely. Often our reputation not only precedes us, as you've heard the saying, but it, but it also safeguards us. This phrase, this Hebrew phrase, a causeless curse, can also be translated a word of condemnation. Or um, it could also be translated uh, a false accusation, even. Have you ever had someone accuse you of something that's not true? Have you ever had someone label you as something? Well, you must be this because of something you said or a conviction that you hold. Well, Solomon says, in the same way that a sparrow quickly bounces to his next resting place, flitting around, as it were, or a swallow dives down for a worm but doesn't land, so it is with a baseless curse leveled against a righteous person. It just it doesn't stick. People see through it. They don't buy into it. Now, it doesn't mean that it's never right for us to defend ourselves. Sometimes we have to. But this does mean that God protects those who seek after Him. And I think that's comforting words uh, for all of us. Uh, I remember early on in my ministry, maybe year three or four, as I recall, um, the church that I was at was really growing numerically, and God was doing some incredible things, restoring marriages, and it was just an amazing kind of season. And there was a guy who started spreading rumors in the church that I wouldn't meet with anyone, that I was untouchable, or not untouchable, unapproachable rather, and I just wouldn't meet with anybody. And, but it wasn't true. I mean, the, the, what was really happening uh, was he, he was a guy who'd been at the church since he was a, a kid, and he was used to sort of waltzing into the, the church office and getting right back to the pastor's office whenever he came in, whether the pastor was praying or meeting with someone or reading the scripture or studying for sermon, he just was used to going right back. And, and what I said to him, I, I'd love to meet with you, but let's just get something on the calendar. And it could even be just a few days from now, but let's, let's uh, get something on the schedule. And so he started telling people that I wouldn't meet with him, wouldn't meet with anybody. Again, which, which was a lie. I called a friend of mine who was a, a pastor and been in ministry many years uh, more than I had at that time. And he said, look, you, you trust God with the huge things in your life, your children's salvation, your health, natural disasters, your career. Why won't you trust him with your reputation? God's not sovereign over just the big things. God is sovereign over it all, including our reputation. The God who loves us, who is sovereign, can be trusted in every area of our lives, over the huge things and over the small things, over our careers and over our children, over our relationships and over our reputations. For those who belong to Him, who are in a relationship with Him through Jesus, the Father keeps a close eye on His children. And by the way, if you have someone 
and I hope this is not the case for you, but if you have someone even right now who's saying false things about you or labeling you or whatever it is, um, you're in a long line of Jesus followers. You're in a long line. In fact, I was, I was planning on, I was beginning the preparations for this sermon series through the book of Acts and starting some preparatory work this week. And um, I don't know if I had realized this before. I'm sure that I read it before many times, but uh, Stephen was kind of one of the first uh, that we see who was actually killed because of false allegations made against him. He is brought in before uh, the court, brought up on charges because others had made false accusations against him. So if someone is saying something about you that's not true, you are in a long line of Christ's followers. Now let's get to the really controversial part of this passage, verses 4 and 5. The text reads this way, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Ever since the resurrection of Jesus, there have been critics and skeptics and scoffers who have sought to discredit the Christian faith and demean the reliability of the Bible. And that goes to all kinds of places, but here's one passage, this two-verse section that people have gone to to say, look, you can't trust the Bible. It says one thing in one verse and and a very different thing, the opposite thing in the very next verse. The Bible is confused. The Word of God is inconsistent. You can't buy into it. How can we trust the Scriptures if they have errors in them? How can we trust the Scriptures if one verse says something but the next verse says something else? Well, again, this so-called inconsistency is very easy to reconcile if we understand this in light of its literary context. The immediate question is, are we supposed to answer a fool according to his folly or not? And the answer is actually our second point this morning. Here's what it is. It takes tremendous God-given wisdom to know how to respond to a fool. There are some types of fools and some types of situations where rebukes are beneficial and even necessary. And there are other types of fools and other situations where any answer at all will be destructive. And it takes a remarkable amount of discernment to distinguish between the two. If you recall, if you were here last week, I I, I kind of defined wisdom as the capacity to discern how the heart works, the desire and the ability to live in harmony with God's created order. Well, wisdom is is also a God-given capacity to read people and situations in such a way that a right response, a profitable response can be offered. Now, notice it's a God-given capacity. If you're in a situation where you have a, a, an adult child or a spouse or a neighbor or a coworker, or and, and you just can't, you don't know what to say because anything you say seems to be inflammatory, incendiary, whatever you say, it just seems to cause sparks fly. Pray to God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom and how to respond, how to deal with this person. And God promises He will provide it. Ask God to soften the hearts of the person you're dealing with, and to soften your own heart as well. Now, let me give you some practical examples here of kind of when to refrain and when not to refrain, when to answer a fool. Um, so let me give you some, a few here. If it becomes evident that another person just wants to argue 
and has no interest in actually listening, that's an occasion to refrain from answering a fool. You ever had a conversation like that with someone and, and you can see, you're looking in their eyes, you can see the wheels turning. They don't really care what you say. They're thinking about what they're going to say next and they're not going to be persuaded by anything you say because they really don't want to listen at all. This is you go back in the, to the Gospels and you see the Gospels, the, the, the first evangelists were given this instruction at time to kind of leave a place, a town, and shake the dust off their feet. This is a response to the scoffer, to the one who mocks, the one who will not listen at all. That's when you have to say, look, there's no, there's no benefit for us to continue this discussion. And then you hold firm until you see a softness of heart. Here's another one. If the person you're dealing with gets angry or agitated or results to attacking you personally rather than dealing with the issue at hand, that's a cause to not respond to that person. Instead, you say, look, there's, there's, no, there's no point. We're not getting anywhere. You're actually attacking me. You're not even addressing the issue. So I'm just not going to talk about this right now. I was called into... Um, an emergency situation a number of years ago where an adult son was berating and belittling his mother in every sort of, in most of their exchanges. And so this woman came to me, tears in her eyes. She said, hey, would you be willing to kind of mediate between me and my son? We can't get anywhere. And I said, sure, I'll do that. And she said, will you come over to my house? My adult daughter lives here as well. And so I just want you to be there when I talk to my son. I said, I'm happy to do that. So plan to go over there, went over there. And she told me, she said, my son decided not to show up. But maybe if I call him and I put him on speakerphone, you can listen. I said, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to do that. So she called him, put on speakerphone, the son answered. And right away, he became agitated. He became very angry, started yelling at his mom, started cursing at his mom, calling his mom all kinds of names. And he just kept going. Every time she would say something, he would overpower her with his voice, with his volume. And so I'm listening there, I'm kind of in, in the background, and, and I, I got her attention, and I said to her, I said, you, you need to end this conversation right now. You need to completely end it. She looked at me with shock. I mean, how could she hang up on her son? How could she do this? Yes, she's sobbing over the things that he was calling her, the names he was calling her, and the way that he was belittling her. And so I, I grabbed a piece of paper and a pen, and, and I wrote kind of in larger letters, I just a note, and I, I held it to her. I said, tell your son, this conversation isn't going anywhere. You're hurting me with your words and your tone, and then hang up. And she was reluctant to do so, but finally, with tears in her eyes, she said that to him, the way that I had worded it, and she hung up. Sometimes it's unwise to deal with a fool. Sometimes it's not profitable, it's not helpful to continue in a discussion with someone like that. Now, however, if you see someone gaining a following through false teaching, through manipulation, if you see that, that a lot of people, a growing number of people are starting to buy into a certain person's persuasion, then it may be the time to go and say to that person, hey, what, what are you doing? What are you saying? I want to talk about what you're communicating. I, now, notice I said go to that person. I'm not saying on Facebook or some social media post. I'm talking about addressing that person face-to-face -face if it's possible, going and dealing with that scenario. In that case, it's actually necessary so that others would not be harmed by his or her rhetoric 
to go and deal accordingly. The bottom line is it takes tremendous wisdom in dealing with a fool, the kind of wisdom that only comes from above. Now, another reason, and you know you've heard me say, whatever text you're in, there are hints and traces of the Redeemer. There is a way that it fits in the bigger story of redemption, of which Christ is the hero. Another reason it takes tremendous wisdom in dealing with a fool is because we don't always see things clearly ourselves. We have blind spots. And because of the sin curse passed down from our first parents, Adam and Eve, we don't reason perfectly. We don't see perfectly. We don't think perfectly. All of those abilities have been infected and affected by sin. And this is why, this is why the, the attitude of every believer should be one of self-suspicion when it comes to conflict. And that is when we go into a conflict, we have a conflict with our, again, all the people I mentioned, whether it was a spouse or a friend or a neighbor or a child or a co-worker, whatever it is, we approach the conflict recognizing that I have probably in some way contributed to this. Now, I'm not saying that we I'm not saying that we take this sort of therapeutic notion of forgiveness where we just say we're sorry for everything, whether we mean it or not, or feel it, or we believe we've wronged anyone. But I'm talking about being self-suspicious, recognizing that in some way, we have probably contributed to the conflict. We should assume that we may not see things as clearly as we think we see them. Sometimes, the way we think things ought to be is not the way God thinks things ought to be. Sometimes the things that we deem wise are the things that God calls foolish. Sometimes the things that we deem foolish are the very things that God deems wise. Take, for example, the gospel, the good news of God's salvation, which is what the whole Bible is about. The gospel tells us that God's forgiveness is free that we cannot earn it, nor can we ever do enough to merit God's forgiveness. The gospel tells us that in order for us to be saved, finally and climactically and spiritually saved from our position of lostness and separation from God, there's nothing that we bring to the table. Nothing. God provides it all. The gospel tells us that if we are to be saved, it must come from outside of us, not from within. And that just, I mean, it just doesn't seem right, though, and for good reason, both from the inside, internally, and from the outside, externally, we're persuaded that a person should only get what he deserves. Inside, internally, this comes from the sense of justice we feel as being those who have been inscribed by the very law. The Apostle Paul tells us that the law is written on our hearts. Not only does this mean that all human beings have sufficient knowledge of what is right and wrong burden, burned on their hearts so that their conscience accuses or affirms them. But it also means that by nature, we who are law-inscribed, we demand justice. We resonate with deserving. We are by nature judges. Now, have you ever noticed how this works in our own lives? How we are so quick to judge other people? You ever found yourself saying, why would he do that? Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. Or why is she acting like that? Why do they do that? I don't understand that at all. So many other better ways to live. Or making assumptions about things we really don't know. 
The tendency also means that whether we articulate it or not, we're also constantly evaluating our own performance and asking, am I good enough? As I said, share with you before, as a man said to me one time a few years ago, one of the biggest, strongest, most burly guys that I mentioned uh, said to me uh, over lunch, he said, when I go to bed at night, the one question that haunts me every night is, have I done enough? Have I done enough? We are by nature, as those who have the law written on our hearts, we are by nature those who are, who are prone to evaluate, judge, and condemn, even condemn ourselves. And because we, we know we haven't done enough to answer God's, to respond to God's demand for perfection. We're always looking for ways to justify ourselves. And sometimes that means, often that means, looking down at those around us. Uh, the great biblical scholar Gerhard Ford writes, we deeply desire to save ourselves. We sincerely believe we can, and we never stop trying. Though our righteousness inevitably generates unrighteousness, guilty anxiety and moral fervor must satisfy themselves somehow. Hence, strife. So the law of God is intuitive. It makes sense. It makes sense to me, speaking personally, that every single person should get exactly what they deserve and nothing else. I mean, that's the sensible way. That's the logical. That's the reasonable way to look at things. But that produces strife because we know we haven't done enough and we know what we should receive if we got what we deserve. So that's from the inside. Now, that's also magnified or exacerbated by everything that's outside of us. We see everything around us tells us that everything we have, it must be earned. It must be earned. From college entrance exams to Girl Scout awards to the elf on the shelf, we're told you're going to get exactly what you deserve. And it's not all bad. I mean, some of it's very bad, but it's not all bad in that I mean, yeah, I mean, we don't, I'm not saying we take away all standardized testing and all trophies and all awards. And I'm not one of these guys who, has, who say we should have a little league tournament. At the end, everybody gets first place. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is from everything we see outside, it's fostered within us a mindset that struggles so much with this idea of getting something we don't deserve, which is what? It's the very definition of grace. It is the very definition of grace. Now, we love grace in theory, but when someone gets something they shouldn't get or someone avoids something they should receive, it just really irks us. Ethan Richardson says we are a nation of yes-butters. It's not a real word, but here's what he writes. Whenever you hear a yes-but, run for your life. Yes-butters are always effectively saying, yes, but on my terms. Do I believe that all people can be forgiven? Yes, but first they need to show that they are serious about making changes. Do I believe that God's called me to forgive the same people an unlimited number of times? Yes, but, I mean, enough is enough, right? I mean, I can only do so much. Do I believe that God's love is really steadfast and unchanging for His children? Yes, but we need to be careful we don't talk about it too much because then people may get spiritually lazy. Uh, do I believe that uh, Jesus' cross work really did complete my salvation, that it really was finished? Yes, but 
And there's got to be something that I can do to add to the equation. Do I really believe that I'm a sinner in need of God's grace? Yes, but there are a lot of people a lot worse than I am. On some level, we're all yes butters. I never get so much pushback in my preaching as I do when I tell stories of grace. When I, tell, I talk about something that someone has received that they shouldn't, or a punishment that someone deserves but they avoided, that's when I get the most feedback. Because grace, it just causes us to become unsettled. There has to be punishment. There has to be accountability. We can't skip tough love, we say, from the inside and the outside. We resonate so strongly with deserving. And this is why the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. This is why the gospel is not sensible. This is why the gospel doesn't feel right. This is why the gospel is mysterious and counterintuitive. It goes against the way we think things should be. I love what the Apostle Paul writes, 1 Corinthians. He says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Can I offer an interpretation? Has God not made foolish the earnest mentality we all love? Jews demand a sign. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God. What kind of phrase is that? Is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Why is the message of the cross folly? Why is the gospel foolishness? Because it is the announcement that salvation is for the undeserving. Forgiveness is free to us we don't have to earn it, and in fact, we cannot ever earn it. See, the message of Christianity is not God helps those who help themselves. The message of Christianity is not, as one uh, popular preacher in Texas says, with, with God's help, you can do anything. That's not the gospel. In fact, I dare say that's the anti-gospel because we need God for everything. There's not, we can't make one, we can't move one inch toward God. We can't move, step up one rung on the ladder toward God. There's nothing we can do to ever ingratiate ourselves to God or earn His forgiveness. Christianity, the gospel, is the announcement that in Christ, God Himself has come all the way to save us. He enters into the sadness and the brokenness and the hopelessness of humanity. People going their own way down a path to destruction. And then He lives for them. And He dies for them. And He is raised for them. And by His Spirit, He enables them to believe. He empowers them to trust. And when they believe, He credits to them His own righteousness. When we don't know what to do to deal with our trouble, we don't know how to respond with everything that's in front of us, we don't even know, we don't know what to do to be right with God. In Christ, God comes to us. His salvation is not based on what we do or have done or even can do. 
And that makes it seem totally unreasonable. Here's our final point this morning. The gospel is the, quote, foolishness of God. The news that acceptance comes before achieving. Forgiveness apart from deserving. God doesn't require us to provide anything good to be saved. He doesn't require us to clean up our act. He doesn't require us to get our family in order. He doesn't require us to give a certain amount or uh, reach a certain percentage of church attendance. I'm not saying any of those are bad things, but those aren't things that God requires. God requires us to come needy and broken and in full awareness of our own helplessness and our need of salvation. And God delights in receiving people. He just calls us to believe, to believe that He has done enough, to believe that He has accomplished what we could never do, to believe that He came to die for our idolatry and our rebellion. And He takes those who have sinned in all measure of ways, those who have rebelled against Him, and He makes them clean by faith in His Son. This is the greatest mystery ever. This is the greatest paradox ever. This is the greatest news ever. Broken and guilty people given life, forgiveness, and freedom, not because of, but despite their very efforts to find those things on their own. Now, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the salvation of God is so beautiful and so powerful. It's not just about our declaration of being righteous. It's not just about our justification. It's also about God's continued work in us and through us to mold us, conform us, to shape us into the image of His Son. And He is the one who will save us, who continues to save us, and will save us in the end. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Magician's Nephew, which is the sixth book, as I recall, in the Chronicles of Narnia, there are, there are two kids, Polly and Diggory, and they, they use these magical rings to travel from one world to the next. Maybe you recall this story if you've read it. And at one point, they find themselves, they're in a new world, and they're sitting in complete and utter darkness. They can't see anything. It's so dark. And all of a sudden, they hear, and they don't know where it's coming from, but they hear singing. They, they hear this voice. In fact, chapter 8, we're told this. Sometimes the voice seemed to come in all directions at once. Sometimes he, uh, Diggory, almost thought it was coming out of the earth beneath him. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune. But it was beyond comparison the most beautiful voice Diggory had ever seen or ever heard. It was so beautiful he could hardly even bear it. The voice was, as you know if you've read the book, was Aslan's, bringing the, the land of Narnia to life. When Aslan sings... Stars appear in the stratosphere, and the sun peeks its head over the horizon, revealing all the beautiful colors of creation. And the mountains stand out, and the valleys pop, and you can see everything with all the colors, with a panoramic view. The narrator tells us that such developments were stunning. So stunning for the bystanders, they became lost in all the beauty of everything they could see. Until you saw the singer himself. And then the narrator says, you forgot everything else. Now, what a beautiful picture. Aslan, of course, is, represents the living God, the God of the Bible. With everything going on in our world, and, and I know maybe even in your life, as, I, as we prayed for you this week as elders, with everything going on in our world, in our situation, 
Sometimes it seems like we're sitting in total darkness. We don't know what's around the corner. We don't know what's ahead of us. We can't see beyond our immediate situation. Of course, this produces feelings of fear and anxiety and, and, and uncertainty and so on. And yet, we have the promise of the presence of God, the roaring lion, who by his singing brings light into our lives. And when that light reveals his face, the beauty of his face, the splendor of his glory, and as we are allowed to then bask in his power and glory, everything else fades away. It doesn't mean our troubles are gone. It doesn't mean that life becomes easy. But we see things in light of who God is and what He has ultimately in store for His own. What we see is a loving Father who owes us nothing and yet chooses to sing over and to rejoice over His children. Not because of anything we've done, but because of the amazing intense love He has for us in Christ. Now, from the standpoint of deserving, it's foolishness. Why would God receive a people who reject Him? Why would God welcome a people who want nothing to do with Him? From a standpoint of deserving, it's foolishness. But from God's perspective, that being one of mercy and grace and incomparable love, it makes beautiful, perfect sense. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your love. And thank you that you are the one who is deserving of all honor and glory and praise. And yet you have not separated us from yourself in such a way that we could never be brought to you. You've not forever condemned us in a hopeless way, but have sent your son so that we could be brought to you and reconciled to you so that we could be utterly and completely transformed from rebellious criminals who stand under your righteous judgment to forgiven, cleansed, adopted children in whom you delight and with whom you look forward to dining. And Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts this morning. I pray for that person here this morning who's discouraged, who's afraid, I pray that you would supernaturally surround him or her with your presence. I pray that you would help him or her to see your power and your glory and your plan for those who are in Christ. And I pray for the person here who, this morning who continues to reject, perhaps, your wisdom. For the person who continues to reject the embodiment of your wisdom, the person of Jesus Christ in favor of her own plans and schemes, in favor of her own desires, in favor of his own goodness. Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for someone. I pray that you would encourage believers by the gospel, and I pray that you might bring someone to saving faith by the power of the gospel. And I pray that you'd be exalted and glorified in our gathering today as we sing to you and about you, about your glorious grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.